As I was preparing this sermon on Friday, I heard the news that Tim Keller died after dealing with cancer for three years. He was a pastor, a scholar, a champion of the gospel, a, a pastor to skeptics, someone who was significant in bringing and being used to bring renewal and church planting to New York City. His last words, according to his uh, wife and son, were, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. Which is consistent with what he said about death. He wrote earlier, all death can do to Christians is make their lives infinitely better. And he died well. I found myself grieving in hope on Friday for a moment, and as I processed his death, uh, because of the impact on my own life in ministry, because of his teaching, some brief interactions through the Gospel Coalition, other church planting gatherings, what brought me moments of tears of joy was thankfulness for his perseverance to the end. He endured. He was resilient in his faith in Jesus. He pro- proclaimed that the resurrection meant something, and he died in the same way, trusting in that truth. He was kept by Christ and he kept Christ until he breathed his last. Endurance is not always common. Barner Research does studies on faith trends and they found that 59% of young adults with a Christian background dropped out of the faith in their 20s. And this is research from 2011. They updated that research right before COVID in 2019, and that number went from 59% leave the faith to 64%. I can't imagine the trend got much better after the pandemic. And of their research in 2011 and consistent with 2019, only about a little less than 10% is what they called resilient disciples. They determine and define Resilient disciples as disciples with a number of categories that they check through to kind of to look at. They, they go to church regularly because many people say they're Christians and don't go to church regularly. But the resilient disciples go to church regularly. They actually trust in the sufficiency of scripture. They believe it's God's word. They're committed to the gospel. They're engaged in ministry. And there's a couple other notes that they checkmark for resilient disciples according to their research. But less than 10% are called resilient some call it, if you use the word resilience in common language as grit. There's been a number of TED Talks in the last decade about grit, especially with students and young people. The Bible calls it endurance, steadfastness, perseverance. It's an ability to bounce back, stand firm, stand true in difficult times. I want to call it the Chumbawamba faith. Remember that song in the 90s? I get knocked down and I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. That's Chumbawamba faith. <laughs> you will never forget that, right? Resilient disciples. And that's something that's not just for this special class of Christians. It's not just for super mature Christians. This is called for all followers of Jesus to be people who endure, who are steadfast, who persevere, who are full of resilience. Because life will bring pain and trouble. If, if you're hearing this, maybe some of you remember seasons of difficulty, trials, and suffering. Some of you are in the middle of that. Some of you are young enough where that hasn't significantly happened to you yet, but it will occur in your life. All Christians, all true followers of Jesus need to learn how to endure. And that's what Paul describes to us in this text. 
endurance. What Barna calls spiritual resilience. I want to learn lessons on this kind of endurance in our text. The context first, verses 1 to 4, is kind of a transitional sentence moment between what we looked at last week with reconciliation and what he's about to say. Verse 1 says, Working together with him then, we appeal to you, do not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In favorable time I have listened to you, and in the day of salvation have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacles in anyone's way, so that no fault would be found in our ministry, but as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way. And then he goes on to list all the ways that he is going to endure. This is a transitional kind of paragraph between last week and this week. One of the key values of ministry, I like what he says in verse 3, is not to put any obstacles in anyone's way. And it's important as we're thinking about what it means to be on mission in our city, in our place, and this is true of every follower of Jesus in every location, language, culture. There are sometimes obstacles that are in the way. Paul is saying we're trying not to put any obstacles in the way. And sometimes the obstacles that are in the way are culture. They're often preferences. They're expressed in our values, in our language. And sometimes those obstacles are things that are natural to us, but then they become things that make it difficult for someone else to come to Christ. And so you can notice that Paul, he's thinking about this in the ways that he engages as he crosses into Gentile cultures and Jewish cultures. This is why to one of his disciples, he will circumcise him. And one of his disciples, he won't. Because he's thinking about the contextualization. You're thinking, I hope he's the one, I'm the one who isn't in that place. But the, the cultural context matters. He's thinking, how do we not put obstacles in the way as we're trying to engage these people with the gospel of Jesus? One of the issues that's at, at hand with Paul and the Corinthians is that they looked at him in his life, and Paul's life, as he's about to describe, is full of really hard things. And the Corinthians look at his life full of suffering and challenges as a disqualification of Paul being genuine in Christ. Instead of killing it in his apostleship, he was facing all kinds of problems. And so they're saying, well, if you're really in Christ and you're saying this is all about power and life and newness, why does your life look terrible? And that's what they were saying about Paul. They were looking, are you really actually a follower of Jesus? No, he's saying, though, his faithfulness, his endurance, his perseverance, his spiritual resilience in the middle of all of those difficulties is what qualifies him. Because he follows a crucified Messiah. He's proclaiming that there's power through weakness. God gives him endurance through trials. And that's what is proof of his ministry. It's not that there's, you know, an absence of trials that legitimizes his ministry. Paul wants him to see this gospel and not receive it in vain. I think that's important. Sometimes as we're thinking about churches, even Paul, as he's writing to a, a group of people who profess Jesus, there are people in that midst who, upon hearing the gospel, it will be received in vain. Just like Varner Research says, there are around 59% of believers uh, who grew up in the church, or supposed believers, grew up in the church in their 20s, they turn away. Now 64%. They're hearing it in vain. There's lots of reasons. I don't want to simple, oversimplify the, the challenges, the difficulty of all that, but there's a possibility of hearing the gospel in vain because you hear content and it doesn't get into you. You don't trust it by faith. You don't turn to the Lord as actual Lord. And Paul wants to say to them, don't let it be received in vain. See, don't let these trials that I'm facing stop you from hearing the true gospel. 
because they're being led by a false gospel that says everything's going to be fine in your life. And that's not true. That's maybe the same thing we need to hear in our life. Often, one of the, the obstacles that people have in trusting Jesus in the long run is disappointment with God that things don't happen a certain way, or God didn't seem to answer prayers in a certain way. Now, the, the promises of God for no tears and no illness and life and a new creation are going to happen in the new creation, in the new heavens and new earth. And he, he calls for us to trust him in this time. And so maybe we need to hear that call today. Today is a day of salvation. You've heard a false gospel and you need to see that what the true gospel does, what real good news does is it helps you through to endure those difficulties. It doesn't remove all of them on this side of heaven. He goes on in the rest of this passage to invite us to imitate his endurance, to see what endurance is really like, where it comes from. And there are a number of lessons I want us to learn about endurance. First, endurance is shaped by suffering. Endurance is shaped by difficulty and trials. Look at chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. He's not doing this out of boast. He's not saying, look how great we are. No, he's trying to get them to see. No, this is what legitimizes our ministry, endurance. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Endurance is the ability to press on when you are tempted to give up. And then he goes on to list a number of really difficult things. One old church father said, this is a blizzard of troubles. As I was studying this week, I, I couldn't help but one thing stick out to me, that when he's describing all of these difficulties, all the suffering, he's not using the singular. He's using plural, right? Not just one beating, beatings. Not just one hardship, hardships, calamities. All of these are multiple. This past week, I, I was... Uh, experiencing what it meant to be a single parent. Uh, my wife, Jeanette, had to go take care of her mother in Houston. So I was by myself with my kids, trying to do all of life, take my care of my kids. And any of you who are have experienced or you are right now a single parent, I my heart like just feels just the tiniest little bit. But I, as a church, I, I, I want us to actually walk alongside you. If that is a season of life that you find yourself in and you are in need. Sometimes it's hard to express that need. Just even that, that tiniest, less than the percent experience I had made me want to walk alongside those who are in those seasons. Maybe there's difficulties or whatever that is. I couldn't handle one week without my wife. But it's just insane. It was just me and my kids. And that's not even that much of suffering. But Paul is saying in all these things, hardships, calamity, multiple things. Paul has suffered tremendously. Chapter 11, he describes even more what the suffering looks like in detail. But in Acts, if you are familiar with the book Acts, Luke is writing to us about the beginnings of the early church. Much of it describes Paul's early ministry and missionary efforts. You hear about many different difficulties. just want to remind us of some of these amazing stories. In chapter 16, he meets a demon-possessed slave girl. She can tell fortunes because she's possessed by this demon. And that's how her owners were making money. She's able to tell fortunes, so they're basically exploiting her ability through this demon to tell people's futures and they'll pay a, a fee. He meets this girl, frees her from the demon, 
But instead of rejoicing, there's anger because the owner's income is now gone. So they beat him up. They place him in jail. He and Silas are in that jail worshiping, singing and praising to God. And the jailer notices this. And then an earthquake happens. The bars open, people can get free, and the guard picks up his sword, ready to take his own life because he knows he's dead anyways if prisoners get free and Paul and Silas call out to him. No, don't, don't, don't do that. We're here. We're, gonna, we're not going anywhere. And amazed at them, the jailer asks what he must do to turn to Jesus. That's just one imprisonment. He mentions beatings, plural. Acts chapter 14, Paul is preaching the gospel and gets in trouble. They stone him. I mean, we read this in scripture and we kind of just read it, right? But think about the brutality it actually takes to stone. Because you have to corner someone and make sure they don't leave a, a group of people. And unless you're in an area with a tremendous amount of stones that are large enough to do any damage, pebbles, I mean, they'll be very annoying, but you have to actually find the place or be in a place with sizable enough rocks to be able to cause death. And you had to do this again and again. And so imagine there's pain, bones broken, blood, and possibly a concussion, damage to body parts. Paul is beaten. They stone him so much, they actually believe he's dead. They drag him outside the city and leave him there. But he's not dead. He gets up. And you know what he does? Beaten and messed up, does he... My initial reaction is, let's go get healed up. He walks back into the city because he's not done with his servant yet. <laughs> that's, a, what, that's, that's what kind of person Paul is. He's not done with his servant yet. He's not done proclaiming the goodness of Jesus. That's how alive he is in the inside, even though the outside is beaten. He's developed an endurance, and it's formed through suffering. We will all have different kinds of pain in our life, circumstantially, maybe even bodily, relationally. We'll have it, we are in it, or we've had it. And pain and trials and suffering will either make you resentful or it will shape you to be resilient. We will all get hurt. That is absolutely inevitable. And if you don't deal with pain, in many ways, it can kind of turn into this, like a wound that festers and turns into bitterness, right? If you, or you do it the wrong way, it kind of makes you resentful. And you've seen people experience this. They experience some pain, often relationally in a church, and they get hurt. And then they, instead of bringing this pain to the Lord and wrestling with this and taking the circumstances and trusting God, even in how difficult it is, they let that wound fester and it turns into resentfulness. But if you bring it to God, he promises he will meet us there. He promises, and we see it throughout not only scriptural history, we see it in church history. You probably know people who are demonstrations of this. They take their pain, and God makes it into something beautiful. That's why when you, we, I was hearing about and many people who have been following along the, the cancer struggle of Tim Keller, and many people you know in your life have gone through the journey of wrestling with cancer, trusting in Jesus. You see something beautiful there. 
Because you know something that's so deadly, so terrible, and someone can take that and bring it to the Lord and God makes that person beautiful. As he read in this book, right? This is just a, a light and momentary affliction preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. That's what happens if we bring those things to the Lord. He shapes it into endurance and beauty. With God, we know that there's always purpose in pain. There's always purpose in trials and suffering. We don't always know why. We won't even always understand or get a reason why on this side of earth. But he always redeems pain. He always redeems it, even to the point of death. And we see that in the cross, where he went to death and redeemed it and brought about salvation for, the, for humankind. James tells us at least one purpose, right? All the trials, all the difficulties, it produces steadfastness. Endurance. The endurance is shaped in suffering. And so the sufferings that you have faced, the trials that you're in the middle of right now, the pain that you will at one time have in your life, will they make you resentful or resilient? Second lesson about endurance is it comes from character. It comes from character. Look at verses 6 to 7. He lists a whole bunch of virtues by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God. Endurance comes from character. Character is not just what you do. It's who you are. It's the kind of person that you are when there's no one else there. Right? Throughout history, you can see a list of vices listed in church history, and those describe bad character, pride, greed, selfishness. They describe it virtue as good character, humility, generosity, love. He describes it here as purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, often overlapping with the fruit of the Spirit. Paul is showing us that endurance flows from character. He lists these, right? Purity. That means maintaining integrity when you're pressed. Knowledge. This is not just intellectual information and gathering more facts. This is conviction when it's hard. Conviction, holding true to truth when it's not convenient. Patience. It's the ability to, to hold on when times are hard. Kindness. It's not responding with hate when you receive hate, but responding with love and mercy. Genuine love means caring for people that are really hard to care for. And we all have people like that in our life. Truthful speech. Being honest, even if it costs you. You may have wondered, if you were paying attention to that list, why he mentioned the Holy Spirit in the middle of all that, verse 6. Because character, this is spiritual character. It's not just the product of your will and your effort. These are coming from the Spirit's supernatural work in your life. You know, it's not just us trying harder to be honest, patient, and loving. It's yielding to the Spirit's work, which God has given to all those who are in Christ to allow for these fruit to develop. This is spiritual character, spiritual endurance. And you can talk, you can watch all kinds of, there's tons of books, TED Talks on grit and endurance. One of my favorite uh, authors of recent time I've listened to on my longer runs is David Goggins. Right? He, he's a guy who talks about pressing forward, 
I've learned a lot about physical and mental endurance from him. But that's not the kind of thing that Paul is describing here. When he lists purity, knowledge, patience, all of these character qualifications. He's talking about trusting the Holy Spirit that indwells in you. Being with God so that he can shape those things with you. Spiritual resilience means trusting in him. That also means then God will most do most significantly do the work of making you like Jesus in the hardest times of your life. But our instant reaction, I think as Americans in the middle of this, and I say uniquely Americans because Americans have at its core a cultural desire for comfort. At its very core, we have natural reactions against things that are difficult and hard in our life. And so, but God most significantly shapes you to be like Jesus in those moments where it's hard. And so when those things come, maybe they're right here, right now, don't run away from it. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend it's not there. Don't, don't just kind of brush it underneath. Maybe that very difficult thing, maybe challenging circumstance, that really bad news you receive, that is exactly where God wants to do the most significant work in your life. Because the Holy Spirit is going to do something there in the middle of that in producing purity, knowledge, patience, kindness. The power of God to shape this kind of character. That's what happens. That's why people can be attacked and in response, show and extend love. That's why people who experience significant loss in their life can still have gratitude. You know, the story of Job, right? He loses almost everything in his life. And his wife says to him, curse God and die. I mean, you've already lost everything. But he can say, you know, the Lord gives and takes away. Because his character is misshaped by God. Even when things are uncertain, as the, as the Holy Spirit is shaping you, by the power of God, you can, even in the midst of uncertainty and anxiety, trust that God has a plan in your life, even when you cannot forge any kind of strategy or any way forward. Godly character. It's not just revealed in hard times. It is. It's also shaped in hard times. And that's where endurance comes from. Endurance comes from that character. You see people of character endure. A third truth I would like to think about when it comes to endurance is endurance is needed when things are really good. Endurance is needed when you're successful. Now that may seem strange, but look with me. Verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Here's the point. Everyone knows failure crushes people. We all know stories of people. We've all met people where some significant failure or difficulty has crushed them. Relationship ends, a career ends, you run out of money. Those are hard times. But I want us to hear this because I think this is the one we missed. You need endurance when things are going really well. You all know stories of people who get everything that they want and they're crushed by emptiness not just celebrities. There are, there are people who don't have a, a household name who, who struggle in the same way. I know people who personally have successful 
lives but are enslaved to something. Their bank account, their career, that relationship, they're miserable. They live constantly in fear. God gives endurance, not just when things are difficult. We need endurance even when things are successful so that we won't be inflated in our egos, in our pride. And I think actually this is one of the struggles we have as Americans, we have as a church like ours in San Francisco. We lack endurance at times, maybe because success kind of has buoyed us for too long or perceived success or external success. We need endurance through success. That's why Paul can say in his writings, I have learned to be content with much or little. Obviously, it's hard to be content when you have little. Why do you need to be content when you have a lot in abundance? Because when you have a lot, the, the temptation is to trust in your things. And as a church, I weary, I'm worried and I'm weary of us trusting in our things. Do we have endurance when we're successful? When things are going well? Only a God can give us resilience that can withstand not just failures, but also successes in our life. Another truth about endurance is that it's based upon a countercultural, kind of a reversal view. Look at this contrasting reversals here in verses 8 to 10. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Endurance is based on this countercultural, eternal view of life. In Corinth, the perspective was very similar to San Francisco Bay Area perspective. Status, prestige is everything. And yet Paul has a countercultural reversal view. I mean, they think Christians, the regular Corinthians, are imposters. They're pathetic. But it all depends on perspective, on their view. I think they say here that they're treated as unknown, yet are well-known. Here's what that means. And actually, I think this is very applicable to us in our common time, in our social media age, right? A lot of people want to be well-known. Actually, there are many people, if you take a look at social media, who do anything to achieve that. They do all kinds of silly things to achieve that. They go on, Britain's Got Talent to achieve that. They do all kinds of things to be known. Because deep within us, there's a longing to be known. For someone to know our names, for someone to affirm our story, our difficulties. The problem is we direct our longing to be known to the crowd. We direct our longing to be known to likes and shares and that very quick dopamine fix that comes as a result of getting those likes and shares. Paul's saying here, though, to be known is something different. The irony is you can be well-known by name and not be really known by real community. You can be surrounded by fans that have no real friends. You can be, have this kind of known fame around the world and have a void in your soul. And scripture tells us through the gospel, you are known by God. You are well known by God. doesn't matter if no one in this world knows anything about you. I mean, fame is a very cheap substitute for glory. You notice the scriptures never talk about God being a God of fame. He's a God of glory. 
We are invited to be with the king of the universe. He's adopted his children into his family to be sons and daughters, kings with him, rulers with him. You are seen and heard by the living God, whether or not the world knows you. In Christ, you are eternally known. You can begin to see why Paul has this perspective and it helps him go through and endure. He goes on. He says, if dying, we live. Exactly the same way that Tim Keller just expressed his own death. If you look in, if you read history of a missionaries who had their lives taken way too quickly, they have the same perspective. Why would they even be able to do that? Because they know what is beyond this moment is far greater. That they've already died to their self because what they have is in Christ. He goes on to say, as poor, because as the Corinthians looked at Paul, they're saying, well, if you believe in this really rich, amazing God who believes in everything, has given all things abundantly to you, why are you so poor, Paul? Why are you not living up to your, you know, abilities in your life? You have all these degrees. You have all this standing. Why'd you give it? Why do you look so poor? Paul's saying, no, no, no. We have riches beyond measure. Whenever I get a chance to talk with uh, George, who's the founder of Hands at Work, who's come and preached with us, uh, you, many of you have gotten a chance to hear his uh, testimony, his story, heard from people who've gone to our uh, you know, community that we support in Zimba and Zambia. Uh, whenever I, I hear stories of people who work in that ministry coming to the Western part of the world, Canada, Australia, the United States, the, the one kind of thing that's common if you get to conversations about their experiences living in the West is that they begin to see things from this countercultural perspective because the perception in many ways is true. When you go from many parts of Africa and you, especially if you come from Zimba, our community we support, and you come to the West, there's a perception that we are wealthy. And when they come and they see the things that we experience in our life, it is incredible wealth. But at the same time, someone who's looking with this lens in Christ, they will see, many of them expressed in different ways, even though they see massive signs of wealth all around us, they see incredible poverty. Incredible poverty. I remember hearing once from a young person experiencing the West for the first time, who was a believer in Christ, as they saw the incredible wealth, they, they were overwhelmed with how sad they were because as they looked at the church that they were visiting, they saw such poverty. Shallow relationships. You can have riches and be poor. Paul is saying we have riches that no one from that cultural perspective understands. We are not defined by lack. We have everything. We possess everything because we have Jesus. Because if you have nothing but you have Jesus, you actually have everything. And I want, I can say that, I want more of that. I pray you want more of that. Church Father Basil, looks like Basil if you look at his name, um, fourth century theologian. He stood against false teaching. Um, he was commanded to stop preaching the gospel. He wouldn't do it. And so they try to take his stuff. This often, this is the same story throughout all of history with people trying to squash Christianity. They take his stuff. They threaten to send him to exile. They torture him. They even threaten with him with death. And this is the response. All I have, all that I have that you can confiscate are these rags and a few books. As to torture, you should know that my body is already dead in Christ. 
and death will be a great boon to me, leading me sooner to God. Because if someone has God, you can't take away anything from them. And that's what causes them to endure in this life through multiples of beatings, hardships, hunger, whatever it is. That's where you see spiritual endurance. Paul suffered immensely, but he endured because of Christ. You see this reversal of wisdom of the world here, right? Cross is actually glory through suffering. You see victory through sacrifice. You see the kingdom of God come through the death of the Son of God. You see power made perfect in weakness. We know the gospel story doesn't end in a cross. It ends in resurrection, which is the ultimate sign of resilience and endurance. It is grounded in a person where death could not even stop him. And if we are in Christ who conquered death, who can stop us? No matter what you're going through, no matter what you will go through, look to Christ. The Spirit of God, if you're in Christ, is in you, helping you to develop that character to endure. Again, maybe that's the lesson you need to hear, is that that moment that you are facing right now that is most difficult, maybe the very significant place where God is making you more like Jesus. That's why he ends this section here. Look at verses 11 to 13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. You are restricted in your own affections. In return, widen your hearts also. Maybe that's what we need to hear. Maybe there's a hardness of heart because circumstances have made us hard. Or maybe you've been disappointed by someone or the church or a past experience and your heart, that's what happens, right? As, you're, as we get hurt, you know what we do? We callous our hearts so that we don't feel the pain. What Paul is saying though is in the middle of all those things, if you want to experience more of God, open your heart to him so that in the middle of those pains and trials and difficulties, he will make you more like Jesus, make you someone to endure, make you someone who brings him glory all the way until you breathe your last. And may we do that to the glory of God. Let's pray. Would you take a moment to allow the Holy Spirit who's here to speak? Father, may you cause your spirit and your word to be pressed into the hearts of my friends who feel weak today so that they will know that in Christ, as they bring all of their lives' circumstances to you, that they are strong 
Fathers, my friends who feel poor, maybe poor relationally, poor financially, poor circumstantially in opportunity. Father, may they, as they face perceived poverty or external poverty, bring that to you and may you change it, reverse it so that they will see in Christ they are abundantly, eternally rich. Father, may they, those who feel illness and pain, even nearness of death, turn to you, Father, so that even in those moments where there is no control over body, no control over age, they will see someone who is given and has eternal life. Father, teach us by your Spirit and your Word to endure. Help us as the church, Lord, especially as I read those sad numbers. Lord, may we be a church that raises young people, our children, our youth, so that they would come to see the true and living God. They would not just be another statistic, but they would be known by you and they would be known by people, adults in our church, who love them and care for them, who walk with them through young people's challenges today. Father, teach us so that as much time as we have as individuals, as the church, we'll be faithful to you. We trust in the power of the Spirit. Amen.